And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is Jerry Wiss. He's a regular participant on our other program, Holding All Things Together. He also serves as one of our advisors. Jerry, it's great to have you with us today. Well, thanks, Dan. It's great to be with you. You know, one of the themes in the scriptures that consistently comes out as we read the Bible is the idea of the kingdom of God. And you have done some studies on this. I think you participated in a recent conference where you talked about the kingdom and its glory. And um, one of the figures in scriptures that comes out is King Solomon, a king of Israel. And uh, maybe to get us started, Jerry, today you could um, talk about the kingdom, and in particular, this, uh, this man Solomon, and what is important about his life. Well, Solomon um, typically gets short shrift uh, when we look at the kings of Israel, and I think David is often right at the center of things, and for good reason. Solomon is a little bit different in terms of uh, external glory, and sometimes we don't entirely know what to do with that, and yet there are prophetic types and anti-types that are developed and Uh, not only fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, but then also uh, sort of laying the groundwork, I think, for how the church ought to uh, be thinking about itself and its mission uh, as a result of that anti-type of Solomon's. I'd say, you know, Dan, if um, if you look at the history of Israel as God's people, there's a bell curve of sorts. Their nationhood began with the Exodus and gradually ascended through the time of David until Solomon, when it reached its peak, or what we could say uh, its apex. And from there, uh, it was a descent until the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, when the whole concept of Israel actually changed. Uh, David was a great king, certainly a messianic anticipatory one, which is why we identify with him in the Psalms so well. Solomon was more, I would say, more objective. We see in the Proverbs, even uh, even in the histories uh, in the Kings and Chronicles, there um, the uh, writers show him to be one who has more of an administrative cast uh, than David. And um, I guess, you know, for, for that's on its face uh, less interesting <laughs> in some ways than David, and yet Solomon's blessing and the blessing on the people was something not previously achieved in Israel, uh, nor would it be ever again. So there's uh, similarities and differences here as we think about David and then about Solomon. Um, certainly David made some poor choices. How would you say that his reign ended? Well, David started well, had made some poor choices, and suffered the consequences for that, although he ended well. And Solomon, on the other hand, started well, but did not end well. Um, Both David and Solomon, in their way, anticipated the kingdom of God in its fullness in regard to our Lord Jesus Christ, but in different ways. So, David was a king of Israel uh, as a king of travail, I would say, always at war, it seemed, whether externally or internally in order to establish the kingdom. You know, his um, travail running from Saul, and certainly uh, he was 
at war, it seemed almost all the time, keeping, um, uh, trying to expand the borders of Israel, uh, defending Israel against the nations around it. Um, the Lord's earthly ministry was similar in the sense that he struggled to establish the righteousness of the kingdom in terms of uh, his travail, the temptation uh, in the wilderness, his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, and of course the passion and the cross. And if you look at Solomon, Solomon stepped into David's successes. And I would parallel that and say, well, that's just like the Lord Jesus after the resurrection and ascension stepping into his full kingship over the nations in regard to the gospel. So, you see, Solomon, not David, built the temple, just as the now resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus is building the new temple, the church. And, of course, Solomon is a mere man, a greatly gifted man, but a man, uh, nonetheless, petered out. He, in the end, did not give his heart wholly to the Lord, um, the scriptures tell us, as his father David had, despite David's own problems or personal problems. So these men, uh, Solomon certainly was fallible, and God wanted to show that something, someone greater was coming, uh, someone that was better. And um, that's, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. You know, in terms of uh, earthly leaders, um, the temptation, if I can call it that, is for us to always want a very strong leader, one that will um, put away our enemies and, you know, that we can look up to. And yet we know that we must look to the Lord and not to the strong arm of man. But one of the things about Solomon that he was renowned for was his wisdom. Um, How important was this to Israel at that time in the world, the wisdom aspect? Oh, well, it was central. In fact, it was the core of the kingdom's, what we would call, uh, I guess, externally, its success at the time. Not, of course, that David had no wisdom. Saul had very little, we think. But um, one of the things we need to understand about how the Old Testament, um, especially the book of Proverbs and, say, 1 Kings and Chronicles, um, what that with the word wisdom there means and in its let's say shadow form in the old testament is really the gospel and um this is something that solomon did have he came before the lord with nothing in his hands and uh, didn't go to god and ask god well i have some plans here i'm going to ask you to bless them for me he went to god and said you know i'm i'm basically a little child i, I really don't know what to do Please give me wisdom so that I can rule this great people of yours. And God answered that prayer and then threw in all of the other attributes of kingship as a bonus. Um, Just because Solomon did not ask for wealth, he became wealthy. He didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for even peace on every side from his enemies. He also didn't ask for honor, great honor and prestige. And yet these are all things that God had given him because he did ask for the right thing. And if you go into the Gospels, you'll see uh, the Lord uh, telling us the same thing. You know, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and then all everything else will be added 
unto you. That doesn't mean we'll all become kings and live in palaces, but what it does mean is Solomon had it right in terms of making the Lord truly Lord of his life, and the Lord then blessed him not only with wisdom but with all of these other attributes. And it is wisdom, of course, that maintained the kingdom. Uh, It grew in terms of its borders were um, farthest flung than they ever had been and ever would be. The kingdom, of course, became incredibly wealthy. And at the same time, not only did God make other kings and leaders live at peace with Israel, but they sought out Solomon. They sought him out for his wisdom. Uh, The queen of Sheba, um, Hiram, was very instrumental in uh, the building of the temple and Solomon's house. He got along with everybody. (laughs) And it wasn't necessarily because, it certainly wasn't because he only had communication skills. It had to do with what he prioritized and how he went about things. And that, of course, comes from the Lord. The other thing, I think an example, of course, even people who don't read the Bible know the story of the two women with the one child. And Solomon um, certainly sounds harsh, but says, well, let's divide the child and we can share it that way. And of course, the woman who whose child it really was, came right out and said, well, no, uh, give it to the other one. And then Solomon, of course, ensured that the woman who spoke out got the child. Um, Now, people may ask, well, what if, would he have really gone through with that? Well, this is his wisdom, that he knew he wouldn't have to. That's the uh, wisdom that he has. If I can speak to what you uh, had just said earlier about uh, David making some poor choices um, sure. and Solomon and David being sort of uh, starting and ending on both sides of the spectrum. Uh, David's sin with Bathsheba and his plotting uh, to have Uriah murdered brought judgment, but he repented and then he ended well. Solomon, you know, started well asking God not for privilege, peace from his enemies, etc., all the things we were just talking about, um, but he asked for wisdom, and God gave it to him, as well as everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but his pagan wives, you see, turned his heart. And that's a warning that's actually given in Deuteronomy 17. Moses writes there that, you know, there's going to be a, he prophesies, there's going to be a time when you're going to have kings. And when you do, make sure, uh, you know, tell your kings, make sure that they don't take too many wives, is what it says. And uh, be, and it comes right out and says it because they will turn the king's heart. Mm. And, um, and so really right there in the next generation with uh, Rehoboam, it all started coming apart. Um, all that Solomon had accomplished through the covenant obedience, the covenant keeping, um, he ended up losing for Israel going forward because of his covenant disobedience toward the end of his life. Mm-hmm. When I hear of Solomon and I think of the Proverbs in the Bible, these are wonderful portions of Scripture to read, and they're organized into, what, 31 chapters, I believe, so they're very convenient if you want to read one chapter a day, if you have kind of a simple Bible reading plan like that. Sometimes they may be a little hard to understand, maybe a little hard for people to get their arms around them uh, when compared to other books of the Bible. Can you comment on that? 
Well, um, the Proverbs are linear in their observations and in their recommendations. They're kind of pointed in their advice. As wisdom literature, I'd say they're, they're designed to objectively tell us which way to go to please God and thereby to enjoy a fruitful and a happy life. So they're really to be taken on face value. Um, there's much there, you know, very practical things from business practices and how to treat money uh, to sexual purity, attitudinal postures um, in relationships, etc. It's best, I think, not that we wouldn't want to necessarily uh, stay on a verse or two. I mean, that may be spirit-inspired. Lord is trying to uh, show us something and that we should pray through uh, in our personal walk with him. But I think it's best um, to read through the Proverbs, maybe even several times, instead of always stopping and chewing on individual verses. You know, that's that's okay, uh, but it doesn't really give us the broader gist. The Proverbs are covenantal, meaning their advice is not only wisdom, you know, it's a good idea, but instructional in terms of how to conduct our lives so that uh, we see good things uh, as a result. Now, one one way is to take the easy way. And th- this is the theme, general theme of the Proverbs. Um, take the easy way, the way of the flesh or the natural man for immediate results, but long-term bitterness. And the other way is to take the way of faith, which may not bring immediate results as we may want, but which do bring home uh, in the long-term blessing in this life and in the life to come. So the amazing thing with the Proverbs um, is if you go to Galatians 5, Dan, you'll see that much of the fruit of the Spirit lines up with the Proverbs, while at the same time what Paul condemns also in Galatians 5, the Proverbs also condemn. So there's really a lot of Old to New Testament consistency and continuity here. Well, that's a good observation. After the uh, interview today, I'll have to go reread <laughs> Galatians 5 and uh, compare that. The uh, Proverbs are written by Solomon, as far as I know. And what about Ecclesiastes? Uh, who's the author there? Well, um, in, in Ecclesiastes, there probably are two different authors. In fact, I think uh, we're 99.9% sure of that. I I um, recently heard a faithful Old Testament scholar who said that the language, the grammar and the structure, but also even the vocabulary of the two books are so different in the Hebrew, in the original Hebrew, that it would be like comparing the English of Shakespeare to that of T.S. Eliot. So, sure, uh, Ecclesiastes is written like more than likely that by someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and likely hundreds of years later, but it's still it's still the word of God, of course. And um, you know, it's, we could speculate he he may have been a Judean king uh, or a scribe in, in his court um, in the future, sort of reduced kingdom of of Judah, even a few hundred years later after Solomon. So that uh, reduced kingdom of Judah, uh, uh, several hundred years, let's say, a few hundred years after Solomon was gone, was a shadow, really, of what Solomon's kingdom had been. Mm -hmm. And that's probably why so much of 
Ecclesiastes, uh, the writer to the Ecclesiastes seemed dejected uh, when considering even the covenant. He would, he would have liked to expect something better, but didn't get it, and he sees that others aren't getting it either. Mm-hmm. And um, then that's not anti-covenantal, though. Uh, Solomon receives the covenant from the Lord um, three times during his lifetime, if you read First Kings. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, we see that the writer three times says, eat, drink, and find pleasure in your toil. <laughs> <laughs> so, in other words, stick with what you do and stay faithful, and the light will eventually dawn. Mm. And, you know, Paul pretty much says the same thing in, in his way in 1 Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians 9, you know, keep doing whatever you're doing, and stay faithful, you'll be clear about things if they are unclear, if that's what you do, if you live up to what you already know. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of questioning in Ecclesiastes, but not ultimately despair. And if it is despair, it's the kind, I would say, humanly speaking, that comes from the godly putting too much stock in things that pass away. Mm. Um, but at the end of Ecclesiastes, you know, the book is, of course, entirely vindicated and in a stronger way reiterates those three injunctions that the writer to Ecclesiastes has when he says, you know, the sum of the matter, this, <laughs> fear God and obey his commandments. That much we know, that much we can count on. We may not have the wisdom of Solomon. We may not be able to covenantally trace things the way he so confidently had been able to uh, before he himself, of course, got distracted. But what we do know is the whole duty of man is to fear God and to obey his commandments, and as a result, good things will happen, good things will be. Mm. So it's, it, it does seem to be kind of of two minds. It seems almost sort of existential in parts, and he seems to be role-playing as the preacher or as the king of Solomon. Maybe not. Maybe it's actually a Judean king who's sort of moving in and out of a Solomonic voice and his own. But if you read it carefully, you see that there's hope that's nestled in all of the uncertainty. Mm. And it ends, of course, on a great note of hope, even hope in the dark. So it's... um, I think the church, for the most part, uh, likely got its doctrine of common grace from the book of Ecclesiastes. Mm -hmm. Not exclusively, of course, but to a large extent. Mm. You kind of anticipated my next question, and that is uh, going back to how David was a type of Christ and how Solomon was also, although in a different way. um, What are the implications for Christians and the church today? Well, that's really, you know, the question that we ask. We we go to the scriptures to really understand things, to know how to live personally, familially, ecclesiastically, but then also in community or as the church moves out and interacts and, you know, we think of what we are doing and what we can expect, whether in our generation or in generations to come because of what we're doing. So um, the implications, I think, are huge. Now, first of all, you know, again, we, we need to, I need to reiterate, these are types. That doesn't mean they weren't real people, but we look at them as types and, and anti-type in, in Christ's fulfillment. 
And it is in Christ that we get the full picture. We see that clearly in the New Testament, and I think um, Colossians really uh, lays that out for us very clearly. Uh, David was the king of battle and travail. As Christ was in his travail and battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, a battle which he won, a war which he won. Mm -hmm. Now that he won the war, he's at the right hand of the Father. He's in session, maintaining, ruling, expanding the kingdom. That's going on right now. It may not feel like it, but it is. So that is that aspect, uh, that last aspect, in session, maintaining, ruling, expanding. That's Solomonic. Unlike Solomon, of course, our Lord uh, won't get distracted, but will end well, which means we end well. <laughs> so, you know, the, the prosperity, the cooperation, the peace, the wealth of the Solomonic kingdom are all treasures in a way that the church has in Christ. And I don't mean only externally, although there may be some relationship there, blessing relationship there as well. Um, Wisdom is to be valued much more than silver or gold. You know, we're told in Proverbs, if we're not realizing those treasures, something's wrong. And, you know, we have to revisit why. Maybe, Maybe, like Solomon, the church has its high places. It periodically visits in the dark while in the light of day it's doing what it's supposed to do in the temple, um, you know, that kind of thing. And that's not going to lead to good things. If my people who call themselves by my name humble themselves and pray, I will heal their land, the Lord says. Now, hmm. we, are not a, we are not a theocracy like Israel, but I would say... With you know, over a third of our country clearly identifying, and more than just formally, uh, with our Lord Jesus Christ, it's it's hard to believe that if we did to this together, if we did what Second Chronicles seven says and stuck to it, that we wouldn't see wonderful results in our country, the kind that might even surprise us. Mm. Um, you know, I would say to your listeners, read Psalm seventy two a Psalm of Solomon, and put that next to Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, which repeats important parts of that and ties it to the Lord Jesus Christ most clearly. So, you know, our Lord is on the move, and uh, we want to be part of that kingdom project according according to gifts and according to calling, of course, whoever and uh, wherever we are. That's a wonderful admonition, uh, Jerry. Thank you very much. Today we've been talking with Jerry Wiss. He's a friend of Redeemer, one of our advisors, also participates on another program heard on the air, Holding All Things Together. And if you'd like to contact us with a question for Jerry, our email address here at the station is ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org. Today it's been Jerry Wiss. Thank you very much for joining us and uh, for helping us better understand and appreciate the kingdom and its glory. My pleasure, Dan. It's a, it's a great encouragement for me as well to spend time with this material for me to learn so that I could um, bring that forward for others and, uh, of course, for myself. And thank you so much for having me. And dear listener, please join us next week at this same time for another edition of A Plain Answer.
Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease, and holiness shall whisper the sweet Amen of peace. For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Let your kingdom Lead on, O oh God of mine. 